Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Froda Odegaard, Chairman and CEO of the Post-Industrial Institute. The mission of the Post-Industrial Institute is to develop new management thinking to helping companies and investors navigate the post-industrial transition. You may be wondering, what is post-industrial and what does this have to do with energy? Let's answer these questions and more on this show today. With that, Froda, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to the Post-Industrial Institute. Hey Joe, hey everybody! It's uh, it's great to be on the show. Um, I'm a big fan of the OGGN, and uh, and uh, excited to be a guest finally. Um, so uh, so in terms of my background, I was born in um, in Norway uh, and immigrated to Silicon Valley as you do when you start a software company in high school. Um, and that was kind of the life path I was on the tech industry. And after initially starting out in focusing on software tools for, for software developers and, and tools for software and systems engineering, I became very involved in teaching software and systems engineering best practices and, and more generally how to help, especially large companies, improve the way they did product development, make it faster, improve quality, improve customer satisfaction, and make products more profitable and, and services more profitable. And that kind of seduced me into looking at organizational design because product development isn't just a process, it's a system. Uh, you know, you have, you, there's workflows, there's knowledge management, there's a culture, there's a set of behaviors, um, and, and even the structure of the products that you develop affects all of these dimensions. So, um, and I um, started a company, well, it was a few companies ago, but I started the company back in 2004 that was originally called the Lean Software Institute. And the idea was to bring the organizational learning lessons from companies like Toyota to knowledge work, especially to software and systems development. And because we had um, some large customers that were uh, doing both hardware and software, doing large-scale systems engineering. Um, the company was soon renamed to the Lean Systems Institute. And what we essentially did for about 10 years uh, with mostly large companies was organizational redesign work. And, and the focus there was on solving problems of complexity 
really that were hindering performance, hindering innovation, slowing down new product development in large enterprises. So you know, we had customers like Lockheed, you know, 130,000 employees, lots and lots of bureaucracy, lots of complexity, lots of opportunities for breakthrough innovation, breakthrough results. And after that 10 year period, I started becoming much more interested in problems between organizations, problems that were outside the firm. And I came to realize that because, and we're going to talk about this more today, I think, because there was all of this technology disruption happening, and because we were seeing new business models and, 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 and decentralization in a variety of industries, maybe more of the interesting problems with respect to organizations, with respect to management and, and strategy um, would be in what I saw this, as the sort of mysterious dark matter between organizations. You know, what's going on between organizations? What are the, uh, what are the different structures we see of industries, the value networks, the supply chain networks, and so on? And, and, and these days, of course, people have become suddenly very interested in that because we have all these supply chain difficulties uh, as a result of, among other things, the, the, the pandemic and government interventions uh, in response to the pandemic. And um, so that kind of marked a shift for me. And I started trying to figure out what all of this um, decentralization was about. And, and, I, and I guess we'll go into this in more detail, but I essentially concluded that this was much deeper than business disruption, tech disruption. This was something fundamentally new in the history of the human species. Because we, when we've had progress in technology, and I'm talking about the last 10,000 years or since we settled down to do full-time agriculture in, at the beginning of the Neolithic, um, we've, we've matched that progress in technology with more centralization, right? So we went from hunter-gathering to, to, to you know, the farming lifestyle and then the Bronze Age, we centralized even more, moved into you know, the first cities, and we developed all this organizational, these organizational management tools for of, of how to how to set up organizational bureaucracy writing systems accounting law lawyers um, some of the earliest uh, uh, oldest texts from preserved from the bronze age are tablets that talk about things like uh, you know i got a bad grain shipment and you still owe me money see you in court um, and so so uh, and and this continued into the industrial revolution you know in much more recent human history much of the management thinking that we see around us now is based on problems that have to be solved when we started building and scaling this build, these big manufacturing organizations. Um, but about 20 years ago, the, the landscape started changing, and that was because of the, a combination of the commercial internet and smart devices, you know, smartphones. And so suddenly it became possible to implement these decoupled, decentralized uh, business models, you know, think of Airbnb and Uber, for instance, where you can decouple people and assets from firms and build much more capital efficient companies that way. Uh, they're, you know, they're faster and, and cheaper to grow and so on. And um, when I started thinking about how uh, my goodness, we really have to find out more about what, what all of this means. And I, and I realized that, you know, this is, this is a shift. This is an anthropological shift. 
this is a shift to a new kind of human civilization. It's as big as when we went from hunter-gathering to, to um, full-time agriculture in the Neolithic, or from the Neolithic to the Bronze Age, or from the Bronze Age to the Stone Age. This is a new kind of age. And so we refer to this as the post-industrial transition because we are, we are transitioning to this new kind of of economy and um, and culture, which we'll get into more. But essentially, what I um, what I concluded from all of that was that we need to rethink a lot of our assumptions about how organizations function, and you know what careers look like, what work looks like. Um, how do we do strategy with organizations? How do we do um, leadership and development when we have short employee tenure suddenly? Uh, and very short organizational lifespans. And, and I decided what we need really is, an, is a new school of thought in management thinking or in management science. And that then became my focus. And so the chapter we've been in since 2015, kind of our, our, our second stage now as a company, and we, we're now called the Post-Industrial Institute, um, our, the, the focus now is on developing this new school of thought, uh, developing management thinking and practical tools that organizations and also investors can use to navigate this new emerging landscape with not just tech disruption, but also rapid decentralization. And, and in terms of our focus, we, we do a lot of independent um, research. We operate something called the Post-Industrial Forum, which is a community for policymakers, investors, and, and executives in large companies. Um, and then we do educational and strategic advisory work mostly with global 2000 companies and private equity firms. So that's a very long answer to your question, but I, I hope that's a good start. Yes. Thank you for that introduction. And in that introduction, what I heard you saying, talking about where the name post-industrial Institute comes from and what the post-industrial world is. My first thought was time after the industrial revolution. From what you were saying, it sounds like this is really coming from the the transition from a from what it what was a kind of manufacturing centralized society where the goods were the primary product and where assembly lines and production was what was important. So that was the management style. Whereas now today with the internet, with smartphones, with remote working, with us right now recording a podcast when we're in two completely different parts of the country, this new world that we live in really should utilize a new management uh, hierarchy or a new management style. Is that is that fair to say? Um, Do I have it right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's, and, and, and by the way, that the, uh, the historians of the future may look at all of this and, and decide differently in terms of when areas, areas began and, and ended and so on. But um, as far as we have been able to ascertain, the term post-industrial started being used in the 1970s. And it was in reference to an economy that was becoming more of a services economy and less of a manufacturing economy uh, uh, in terms of GDP. Um, now, what we've looked at uh, also is how is, a, is the nature of technology and how technology affects what we do with organizations 
and how we collaborate and how we trade. Um, after the Second World War, information technology, which wasn't entirely new, you know, we had we had non-digital, we have mechanical computing devices and so on before that. But but as as information technology came to improve productivity in enterprises and improve their ability to deal with information complexity and volume of data, volume of information, um, it actually made uh, it easier to build larger centralized organizations. Uh, and um, there's a, for those interested in business history, there is a fun paper called The Nature of the Firm from the 1930s that talks about what is a natural sort of upper limit for how large organizations can get or how small organizations can be without, you know, why do we even need an organization if we just have one person, right? So, and, and, and um, in that paper, which was written by a British microeconomist named Ronald Coase, um, at, at, towards the end, the author posits that maybe new technologies like the telephone and the telegraph, remember we're talking in 1930s, would make it easier to make organizations more scalable, make it easier to avoid management mistakes. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're sending letters back and forth, and there's misunderstandings, and things are out of sync, and, and so on. And of course, IT changed all of that. So, um, so really, what you first see is sort of this transition to a services economy, but a lot of it is manual services. And um, and even when there's knowledge work going on, it's still plenty centralized. So so what we think is really the 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 big event is when we start seeing rapid decentralization because of technology, uh, uh, and that's really where where um, the internet played a huge role, and also the progress in computing, so that we could then create uh, smartphones. You know, I have an iPhone with. I think it's one terabyte of solid state storage. Right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's more than laptops used to have not very long ago. <laughs> it's, that's, uh, I think it was, a, was it iPhone 5 or iPhone 7 that passed the Cray 1 supercomputer in, in terms of computing power. For those of us old enough to remember you know, the Cray supercomputers, which are very popular in the oil industry uh, for you know, simulations and so on. Uh, we carry around with us a tremendous amount of computing and storage capacity that would be unthinkable to, you know, our parents' generation or, or even to people 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And you couple that with access to anyone, any service, any information dig digitally at any time. Uh, of course, what you get is, is entrepreneurs who innovate and come up with new ways of creating value through just-in-time collaboration, connecting people, services, products, uh, and knowledge. And that's really what I think started uh, uh, making some real change. And that, that's what we think of as the start of the post-industrial uh, transition. This sort of this IT-powered services economy. Uh, um, I have a book coming out next year where I'll go into more detail about all of this. But that's it's sort of an awkward middle stage I haven't quite decided what we should call that yet, but <laughs> but uh, because there's plenty of manufacturing still, and there will be for quite some time. This is a transition; it's not an overnight change. Yeah. But but of course, we also have been seeing for 25 years or more um, work on localized 
small volume manufacturing, right? So you look at 3D printing, that is a 25, 30 year revolution in the making. And uh, manufacturing is very specialized. So um, it, it's going to take a while until we get to having much more generic manufacturing facilities where you just download the software recipe and, you know, and you can make anything. But that's gradually the, the direction we're going to go in so that you have in your neighborhood, you will have you know, local uh, micro factories, which are fairly generic in terms of what they can make. And if you want to have something produced for you, uh, and eventually we're going to get atomic precision level manufacturing, just like, you know, in science fiction. So that, that's something people have been working on for, you know, for 20, uh, 20 plus years as well. Uh, and then you really just can't, you really can download the software recipe and you can get something produced, you know, down the block from where you live or, or at your house, if it's something that's really small and people are 3d printing spoons now at home and small and, 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 and spare parts, you know, and, and shops for, 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 for auto repair and so on. So, so all of that's kind of in, in, the in the making, um, and, uh, and, and this is not just, I want to say this too, this is not just about a new kind of a new economy because we've always had value networks of people are collaborating and trading, you know, at different levels of at different distances at, at different volumes. Um, it's, um, but it's, it's, it's just, um, it's going to look different in terms of the, the logistics of it, in terms of the shape of it, where we're going to have more global sharing of knowledge and content and, and you know, c cultural content too, which we already have because of the internet. And we're going to have a much, much more localized supply chain of everything. Everything is going to be manufactured more, more locally. Um, and so this has implications for policy thinking. Uh, you know, we, we have actually under the last administration, we regressed in terms of free trade. We went back to tariffs. You know, we still have steel tariffs uh, under this administration. Um, so we're kind of going back to the 1970s, maybe, <laughs> in terms of industrial policy thinking uh, and inflation, uh, it looks like, too. Um, and, and then um, at the same time, we have, you know, if you want to watch a Icelandic crime drama on your super high resolution smartphone, you know, you can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't I recommend them to... The uninitiated, because Icelandic crime dramas are dramas are very dark and, and depressing, but but it's all it's all available for us. So so the the um, the transition is already in place. It's not just about business. Uh, it's also about governance. It's also about culture, um, and we can talk about uh, some of the counter forces too, because this is not some friction free development. There are things happening in the world that are pushing, you know, against innovation against collaboration against freedom so so and that's something we have to take seriously as well yeah so i want to i want to jump into some of these bigger ideas and topics and kind of break them down a little bit because really what what you've said and what you've kind of explained is what it what it looks like today and what it's going to look like in the future and some of the the problems that that may cause with the decentralization and the the fact that we are kind of in this middle transition where a good majority of of business still has this top-down approach that is very industrial centralized mindset whereas we do have a a remote working force we have localization pushes and 
and innovation that's coming from really around the world and the ability to collaborate with worldwide partners. So just to to bring it in cuz we we you touched on what a post-industrial enterprise looks like, but just to to break it down into two or three bullet points going from a centralized or a industrial viewpoint to a decentralized or post-industrial viewpoint what is that what does that enterprise look like so you can you can look at different aspects of firms or enterprises we often just use the term enterprise to denote sort of a larger firm i feel um because very small firms that are created now may not need to get very big first of all to create lots of value so you think of you know companies like instagram whatsapp you know, acquired for, was it Instagram acquired for a billion dollars for 13 employees? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and, and because what, what they did, they just didn't need that many more people to create that much value. Um, they were able to use the internet and they were able to grow, you know, grow exponentially. And, and it was, it was, um, that, that created a lot of value. So what we are used to from going back to, you know, my goodness, beginning of agriculture or the Bronze Age, we're used to having to manage a lot of organizational complexity that has to do with either product complexity or because we have a lot of customers that we have to service manually uh, or because we just have so many people. And the only way, if you look at the pyramids, they were built by pyramid organizations. You know, there's someone in charge of the pyramid and that person has people in charge of different aspects of the pyramid reporting to him or her. Well, I guess back then probably a him. Um, and, and so on all the way down and we've all, anyone who's, who's been exposed to or worked in a large company, they know what it's like when you have lots of different levels of management and then, you know, the inform- the bad news doesn't flow back up to the top quickly enough, maybe, uh, cause people are afraid of telling bad news and all of these, you know, and you have the, and the, and the silos, you know, the, 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 uh, divisions between different parts of the company that prevents information from traveling horizontally, uh, prevents collaboration. All, all of that's been around for a long time. And a lot of work and management has been about trying to alleviate those kinds of problems, which are real problems. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't dismiss, um, uh, you know, the last hundred and, uh, uh, you know, 130, 140 years of work in, in sort of modern mainstream management. What we should understand is that it's a landscape is changing. And, um, and so if we take a look at some different aspects of that landscape, one would be the relationship between people and firms. So uh, we know that employee tenures are going down and employee tenures for knowledge work is lower. Uh, their I mean, employee tenure full knowledge work are shorter, rather, uh, and um, and young people today also have a different mindset about how they want to work. So, fifty percent in the U.S., fifty percent of millennials are doing full time or part time freelancing. And during the last two years, during the pandemic, um, I think it was a third of millennials who changed career directions didn't just they didn't just change jobs they changed career directions and now with everyone working from home 
um, we've seen this acceleration, we call it hybrid work because they come on, into the office maybe sometimes and people are trying to figure out how often that should be. But, but leaders now are, are seeing the reality of, of, of you know, a workforce or, or, or uh, I don't even know if that's a good term anymore, <laughs> but the reality of, of the firm's relationship with employees and contractors and freelancers. Uh, and, and, the, and the challenge of how do you lead and motivate these people who aren't, you know, aren't there physically. I mean, Elon Musk, uh, very recently, he announced that he had asked everyone at Tesla to come into the office. You know, the, well, it was, I guess, to, it was management. He asked them to come into the office at least 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what people do there is going to be different in different, different companies. But you have business models out there which are based on sort of uh, uh, people collaborating in marketplaces and networks and, and, and so on that where these kinds of ideas just aren't valid. You know, the, the, if, you, if you think about the, uh, uh, think about an Uber driver, let's say you're an Uber driver, who is your boss? It's like the question doesn't really have meaning, but I mean, the, the superficial question is, you know, your boss is a scheduling AI. <laughs> that that finds you know that tries to allocate business for you optimally um, <clears throat> and tells you where to go and uh, but otherwise you're you're independent you know you have your own vehicle and there's no one who tells you what to do and and really the company provides a service platform for you to log in to get rights so um, and and so much more work is going to be, like that so and it doesn't mean that the the ideas for how to do team building and how to motivate people that are invalid it's just that we have to realize that these practices have to be adapted or even reinvented in terms of how to do it for this new type of landscape okay so so one aspect of the landscape is people and and firms right and then another one is how do we do strategy how do we do governance how do we keep track of goals and progress and so on? And, and it's clear that, that we've used hierarchies of managers to do a lot of this work. But as Tom Andreessen observed uh, some years ago in his famous uh, Wall Street op-ed, you know, software is eating the world. Software is taking over not just a lot of repetitive work, which is, um, you know, which is not very creative. It doesn't create new knowledge. But it's also starting to take over uh, more high-level work, more management work. So the way we think about how you know how do we connect people together, how do we how do we manage projects, more and more of that sort of work also is going to be, um, if not taken over by uh, by software completely, it's going to be software AI assisted. Um, and then you have sort of this localization of of uh, globalization of knowledge and localization of physical manufacturing. Um, that's another big, uh, big aspect of how things are changing. So, so we've, we've done a lot of work in large firms on supply chain optimization. So um, let's, before we jump to the supply chain and localization of manufacturing, I've yeah. got some questions on, on managing in this, in this new enterprise or company style. One, one of the very first questions I get my emails from Microsoft via or Viva or 
task manager, whatever that email is that I get every morning. And I don't even know the name of it because I always immediately delete it. So what do you do? And I guess the the question is, how do you manage in this in this new world when when one we're dealing with people and presumably people like myself are I am I am subconsciously or maybe consciously saying no to that AI help. But then also when you're working with big, large, remote groups of people or working across multiple time zones, how does that management, how do you manage, I guess, differently in order to, to optimize your, your quote unquote production? Yeah. Well, so, so, uh, this is not a challenge that's really new, um, because there have been people for decades who've complained that that work kind of felt, I think it was alienation as a term that some people used. Mm. Uh, um, they, people felt like they were just, they didn't, they were separated from the meaning of the work that they did. Uh, and so if all you get to see is a small sliver of it, yeah, it might help get you a paycheck if you're an employee. But, you know, how do you feel about that? Because humans are not machines. Yeah, we're, we, we need to be motivated. Uh, one of our advisory board members, uh, uh, Dr. Edwin Locke, is super famous for his work on goal setting and motivation in the context of leadership. And he, he actually coined the definition of leadership that's most often used in the literature, which is the, the process of inducing, that is persuading, inducing others to pursue a common goal or vision. And one of the things that, that he taught me was that this is a continual process. And people underestimate, although if you talk to a lot of CEOs, they'll tell you, I spend all this time repeating our message, you know, our strategy, our mantra, our vision over and over to employees. Right? I'm always doing another presentation trying to just get everyone to get it so that they don't lose track of that while they're doing their short-term projects and tasks and or grunt work that nobody wants to do, but it's still important to get the bigger thing done. Um, and, and one of the things he taught me was just, was how, uh, how critical that is and how people often confuse leadership and management. So management is the wider um, role, right? Leadership is an aspect of management. It's, it's the part that uh, in the scenario that you mentioned that has obviously been neglected. Because if you're not fired up about that email that's going to show up in your mailbox, because you understand that if you can get that done, that will just be the last thing that has to be completed for this whole big thing to come together, which will have a huge impact. Um, then then if, you, if you don't feel that way, then of course you, you're going to be repelled by all of that. Um, so we have a, another advisory board member, uh, David Allen, who is the, the father of GTD or getting things done, which is a, a productivity methodology for individuals, uh, has a lot of followers in, in among high level executives and busy investors and tech people here in Silicon Valley. Uh, and he, he's really, uh, 
helped me understand that you can't do projects, right? You can only do individual next actions. But what you have to continuously do is, uh, and, and this is a kind of a good best practice is say once a week, do a weekly review of all of the projects that you are involved in so that you understand what the next steps are for all of them. And that means that in the moment when you are, when you are uh, working and completing that task, that you have some idea of what does that lead to? So it's really connecting the bigger picture with the short term. Um, and, and that's a leadership responsibility. And then there is a tool or management aspect to how do you implement all of that. That's still going to be necessary when people are working in a decentralized fashion. It doesn't matter if you're if you're if you're getting that email with the next task due uh, in an office in a big office building downtown, or if you're sitting on the beach in San Diego. Uh, you still have to go through the same uh, the same mental work and make the same kind of decisions. So. Uh, so there's some some problems are still there, and some of the solutions to those problems in a post-industrial setting, you know, will will still be the same. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. What you're saying, and and really, I guess, exciting to hear that it is all about motivation and keeping your employees understanding what the end goal is and understanding why even if they are just one cog in or one nut or one one bolt in the entire process of building a car that that one piece is vital and understanding what that piece does mm -hmm. and whether that piece is coming in as you said on the beach on the west coast or whether it is coming in in the middle of the midwest it's a very important part. What's likely to change more often, though, is the composition of these teams and the relationship that you have with each of the people in the teams. So, so one of the things that managers, that leaders have to understand is there's going to be just uh, much more just-in-time team formation. And so the way in which we think about making our teams better, making people better, that has to change. We just don't have as long to learn. We don't have as long to get better. And what that probably means is that we have to start thinking about how do we standardize more on the way we manage knowledge, the way we, and the tool toolkits that we use so that teams and people in terms of how they just manage, you know, collaboration, how they manage information sharing and exchange. So that that part, is more sort of plug and play. And, and the content of what they do is going to evolve faster. And the setting in which they do their work is going to become much more decentralized. So those are the differences that are emerging. Hmm. And what about when you look at an employee of a larger company or enterprise versus that freelancer or, or the person temporary coming in to work on a specific task and a specific project. How do you work within and how do you, how do you treat them? Is it differently or do you treat them both equal? I guess, do you have any insight on that? That's a good question. So, so I'm, 
in in manufacturing companies and also in large tech companies, uh, in part due to labor law and in part due to what the market demands are for full-time positions in terms of the employment terms and and uh, and so on. Um, the uh, what's often uh, been done is to have kind of a buffer work source uh, workforce of contractors who where where it's more loosely coupled in terms of uh, you know how quickly you can staff down or staff up and and that's often been done also working through uh, staffing firms uh, so for large companies I don't know that that's going to change very rapidly that the the truth of the matter is that if you treat them too differently, uh, then it, that's going to cause motivational difficulties. It's going to cause uh, it's going to cause resentment. On the other hand, if you don't make the people who who commit to being longer term employees, if you don't treat them uh, a little better, then there's not going to be much incentive for them to do that. Aside from maybe having more job security, but but how much do we even have? You know, this day and age. Um, so, um, so I think the bigger question there is probably looking at who's got the most leverage, not sort of one group of people versus another, but more firms or, or, uh, or knowledge workers. And of course, now what we're seeing is there's a tremendous problem with labor shortages in a lot of areas. We can't get enough pilots. You know, it's hard to get someone to install your cable. Uh, and these are not like high-end, this is not high-end, uh, well, I guess piloting can be considered high-end knowledge work, but <laughs> but uh, but the cable installer, you know, not so much, but it's, it's you know, have to have a certain amount of skill. And and this is a result of, of uh, directly and indirectly of government intervention during the pandemic um, in combination with generational shift in terms of attitude towards how long people should stay in their jobs, how loyal they should be and, and so on. So, um, uh, but if you are, let's say that you are an expert in machine learning, you know, it's a very hot field. You can write your own ticket, you know, there, and, and there are companies here that will pay you 200,000, $300,000 a year, uh, for that, which maybe in other parts of the country is harder to get, but you know, but, but that's that's an example of, you know, of a skill uh, and for a type of knowledge work that's in demand globally. And so because of the Internet, uh, it's easier to access uh, talent, you know, anywhere and for companies. It's also easier for people to access job opportunities anywhere and to work remotely. So in that sense, not not while, while on the manufacturing side and the physical logistics, we have regressed. Um, for you know now, of course, we have the war, Russia's assault on Ukraine, uh, but but before that, you know the 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 supply chain issues <clears throat> due to the pandemic, and also protectionism, we regressed. But in terms of global sharing of knowledge, and being able to work with people globally, <clears throat> you know we're in a better place than we have been uh, for a long time. And that puts a lot of pressure on employers to attract smart people. And uh, yeah, and so, uh, but we often, <clears throat> excuse me, we often forget that when we think about 
you know, HR policies and so on. We think about, you know, how should we treat people? And, and you know, there's a long line of people at the door who want to apply for a job. And that's just not the reality for, you know, for, for people who do very valuable knowledge work. It hasn't been for a while. So I think as you're talking about this, these pieces, we're starting to get into discussions of more the external forces that are that are holding back innovation and holding back these companies versus the the internal and how you manage the team, how you keep the team here. But it sounds like there are also other aspects that are those those external parts that are that are slowing down innovation. What are I guess what are some of those that that are also hindering this this progress okay so let's talk about challenges so so that the the internal ones i think are faced by any enterprise trying to do some type of organizational transformation right so you have conservative culture there's always uh, resistance to change uh the way the company's organized in terms of being siloed and and even how their accounting is set up can make it hard to reorganize work and make it more horizontal um, that's true for any kind of organizational change. And, and now, of course, what happens is because of these developments in the world outside the firm, enterprises themselves have to become more loosely coupled, more decentralized. You have to push more decision-making power to the edge, and you're dealing with managing people who are maybe not going to be around for very long and who are freelancing, even though you are their main focus but their threshold for switching to something more interesting and meaningful is lower. And so, so we, we talk about, um, we talk about this sort of the border between internal and external and, and, uh, of, of firms. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's less of a closed border. And so, so I guess, so in the middle between internal and external, you have these people who are sort of, floating around the firm who are affiliated with you, who are working with you, but firms have to realize that they have opportunities and lives of their own and that can easily drift in another direction. And so, so firms, enterprises have to think about not just a physical community around them. And that, that's an old idea that, you know, you have manufacturing companies with engineers who volunteer to teach STEM in high schools and, and so on, like GE has been doing that for a long time. Um, but you also have to think about sort of the knowledge community around the firm. And, and of course, that's going to be online uh, as well as offline more broadly. And, and so the, 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 all of these developments we talked about are pushing firms to decentralize more. Um, and then you have these, these um, counter forces, which I think is, is uh, your, your real question maybe here. And, and those include... Uh, of course, regulatory obstacles, uh, legal obstacles um, that make it difficult maybe to have flexible uh, employment arrangements. Um, you have things like um, forced technology standardization by governments, like the, the European Union wants to force everyone to use USB-C cables. So now they're actually telling handset manufacturers what standard to use for, you know, for plugs, for chargers. Uh, you know, like extreme, you know, micromanagement, which will create a lot of waste with all the, all the, all of those uh, lightning uh, cables 
uh, that Apple customers have hundreds of millions of them, which will become <laughs> obsolete. Uh, and, um, and, and so there's a sort of this top-down central planning thinking. This is not a partisan, uh, in the United States, we're so focused on partisan politics. These are sort of deeper attitudes. This is a deeper mindset of, do you leave people free to collaborate and create and, and trade? Or do you want to micromanage their lives and their businesses? And the sinners there are on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> and, and the more of that you do, the more you slow down innovation, the more you slow down human progress. Um, that's not new uh, for, you know, for this current era of the post-industrial transition. That's been going on for a long time. We've been generally going backwards for, uh, you know, for the, last, you know, the last century or so, I think. Um, but it's, it's especially difficult if you are a firm or if you are an entrepreneur who's doing something really new, really, really different. And then you find out that a lot of the regulations in the industry are maybe were not so controversial at the time because they sort of helped protect the incumbents and helped codify what was kind of status quo anyway. But now you, if you think about everything that Uber had to go through to just be able to operate legally, you know, in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, they had to challenge these, these laws and regulations that were, you know, they, it's not like they were, they were, they were created, uh, uh, you know, to, to sabotage specific companies, but, uh, or, or competitors of incumbents, but it were just, that was just a default mindset of how, quote unquote, this industry should work. And a lot of these, these disruptive business models that are emerging, a lot of the, these new enterprises that will be born and scaled rapidly are firms that have uh, some sort of disruptive effect on, on industries. And often it's going to have to do with AI, with automation, with autonomous uh, distributed systems, with, with decentralization in some form. And so, yeah, so I think it's, it's not just a regulation, it's a mindset behind it. Uh, and I think that the EU example of, of you know, of, of the EU deciding <laughs> uh, on, on, on forcing everyone to use what's already a legacy technology uh, is a good example. It's a bit like saying, we want to have a, a, we want, we are going to decree that there's going to be a flourishing fashion industry, but at the same time that, so that people cannot use any proprietary, you know, unfair technology. Every, all fashion has to be, all the clothing has to be made out of wool. <laughs> and that's just the law. You know, you just have to adapt. And this is for the protection of consumers. Um, and so, so, uh, and that's basically the, that's basically the reasoning. Um, so, so of course, you want to have a culture. You want to have a civilization that values uh, rational thought. You know, that values knowledge, that values reason. You want to have a civilization where people are free to trade, innovate, collaborate. Um, but I think there's another aspect that we often neglect. Those of us who are big defenders of of, um, of reason and, and political and economic freedom, and that is that it's important to have a culture that's kind of hungry for progress. You know, a culture where people just are excited about the idea of, you know, going into space or, or you know, that's, that's the new version of exploring the planet and finding new continents. We, we've done that now. And now it's about, you know, going into space or, or mastering the world at a small scale, you know, nanotechnology, atomic precision level manufacturing, or building intelligent machines, 
you know, that can improve our lives in all kinds of ways um, and have already and, and will do much more so. Um, that there, you know, there are individual differences, but you know, in terms of you know people that we encounter, in terms of leaders, political leaders, uh, countries, continents, um, uh, in terms of how hungry people are for progress, how excited they are about innovation and, and, and new technology, and the United States has benefited lots from having kind of a, a go-getter culture in that regard. As you're talking through this, one of the things that jumped into my mind was if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's not necessarily the case. That That's essentially stopping the innovation. And, and as you're talking about protecting the incumbents, protecting the, the current, the current way of, of producing and current practices that is almost like we've we've got this this thing it works let's keep doing that let's use this as our best practices but that actually in some ways stifles us and stops us from moving forward it actually hurts us in the long yeah. run yeah and and this this happens with individuals well you know this is good enough i just want to be comfortable uh i'm a martial arts, martial arts practitioner i do traditional aikido so like almost on a daily basis, I'm confronted by, you know, things I need to work on, practice more, polish. Um, and some people in terms of who they are, have that as their personality. Uh, their companies where you see that as part of the culture much more as opposed to companies large and small where they kind of are set in their ways and, and they're, they're just comfortable until one day suddenly they're not viable anymore. And then they suddenly poof, they, they you know, they go out of business. Um, and, and, and so, and, and I was going to say here in the States, we've, we've benefited from having a culture, you know, more broadly that has been friendly towards innovation and new discoveries and so on that has changed. Um, now you have lots of people saying, oh, why, you know, why should we go into space? There are so many problems here on earth. And we used to laugh at those people 15, 20 years ago. And, and now you have lots of people saying this, like, this is, this is, they're not, you know, and, and so what's happening is that people have gotten spoiled and they've forgotten that all of this wonderful wealth and prosperity that we enjoy, and let's not forget that, you know, a homeless person enjoys almost a better quality of life than Kings did, you know, three, 400 years ago, you know, <laughs> with longer lifespans. Uh, and, and all of this comes from, from a combination of you know respect for facts for reason it's respect for objectivity for facts for logic uh respect for other individuals respecting their freedom uh in all all respects economic physical political freedom of speech and so on um and then and then sort of a an enthusiasm for a hunger for progress and now we still have some of that hunger not as much as before and we have deterioration in terms of our political environment and, and that's what I worry about more than, uh, you know, more than uh, actually even more than inflation, which is scary enough uh, as a topic in itself. But but I really worried about how people, if they don't want it anymore as much, uh, that's kind of the beginning of the end of a civilization, I think. Because, you know, what's the point? And you just settle down and you're, you're you know, you're farmers until, what, you, you can't grow food anymore or there's a next natural disaster and you're forgotten, you don't have the tech anymore to to adapt to that. And then the kind of civilization dies out. That's what happened 
to civilizations, many civilizations throughout history. Yes, they just had you know some local climate change or or uh, you know like the end of the ice age was a big one, um, and they you know they just weren't advanced enough to cope with it. And so, in terms of the challenges that we see now, we need not more technology skepticism, more regulation. It's the opposite. We need more freedom and more technology, more innovation, more human progress uh, to continue flourishing and be a successful civilization. Because we're going through a big transition to a whole new kind of civilization now, and there's no guarantee that we're going to succeed. Mm. So, so uh, we got to we got to work hard. Yep. Well, one thing that we haven't really talked about yet, this being the Energy Transition Solutions podcast, we're in this middle, the middle of this transition, but we haven't actually talked about green energy and how all of these ideas and everything relates to energy, the grid, power markets. So just to, how do these ideas relate to green energy and the electricity grid or energy of the future? Well, I think energy is obviously energy is critical for any, uh, certainly for a modern uh, economy and civilization to function. So the first thing that's important is we need energy and we have a problem with a shortage of energy, right? We see skyrocketing prices. We see the, the Europeans foolishly uh, decided to, to shut down nuclear power plants. They made themselves dependent on, on, on the Russians. Not, not, uh, that's not going to be um, look good in terms of history textbooks. Um, so, so that that's the most important sort of human need is we you know we need energy. Now, what is the most effective, efficient way of doing it? Well, I think the answer at the moment is is you know there's a portfolio of of, of solutions of technologies that are available. And what we should do um, uh, on the policy level is we should maximize freedom to give people the ability to choose the solutions that will create the most value as quickly as possible, which will help reduce uh, cost of doing business, cost of living, and give us more resources available to spend on doing more innovation and continue adapting. Now, having said that, on the strategy business strategy level and supply chain management level, it's obvious that if we don't have to spend money and time on producing energy in one location and storing it uh, in a way that's transportable, moving it and then storing it locally uh, and then moving back and forth, <laughs> it's doing all of this essentially what from a lean mansion perspective would be considered non-value added work aside from the production. Uh, then, then that's that's of course better. So now there are technologies, uh, whether it's you know solar deployed uh, on individual buildings, or micro reactors, you know uh, installed in your neighborhood, um, that uh, will help move us towards decentralized, not just energy storage but also uh, energy production, because what we want is whether it's energy or or some physical good that we manufacture is we, we want to be able to produce, store and consume as much as possible in the same location. So, um, and uh, what's going to slow that down going back to the earlier subtopic of, of 
you know, politics, which always seems to be so intermixed with energy, uh, energy discussions, um, is we, we don't want to have EU regulators tell us, you know, what kind of technology to use. We want entrepreneurs, we want uh, scientists, we want engineers to work those things out and find out what actually works in practice. And we want to make it easy uh, to raise capital to to build ventures that implement those solutions for, for the benefit of everyone. So that, that's a very sort of generic high level answer. How's that for a uh, first cut? Yeah, I think that that totally makes sense and is a is a good way to look at it that that's one of the the ideas that that I kick around and think about the idea of as we become more globalized more more ability to communicate and interact with the whole world but as we are facing down this what people are calling the climate crisis and and climate change and and runaway greenhouse effect whatever words you want to use the the with this, there's this significant push for localization. And to me, that is exactly what you're talking about. And in the idea of, of the lean management, where you remove all of the back and forth transportation simply because you make widget one in Wichita and widget two in, in Scranton, instead, you should be making the widgets that you need where they need them. And so it it makes sense in thinking about how do you start turning turning what right now we have gas stations everywhere how do you turn a gas station into its own full full vertical of production and and then selling to the end consumer it's a, right so and, and then how do you how do you even instead of having a huge gas station uh you know where you have you know you have 40 cars lining up right if you go to a costco or something uh, so how do you have one that's what is the smallest viable what is the minimum viable uh uh you know vertical uh entity like mm -hmm. that right that can do energy production or extracting storage and 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 transfer it in in the in the case of of um a vehicle, you know, fueling a vehicle or charging a vehicle. Um, I think it's important also to to consider uh, the fact that that you know, there there's there's a gap between sort of the fantasy a lot of people have about what the world should be like and how things actually function. I mean, the, 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 I've thought about this quite a lot in the last year uh, working my book is is if we don't understand enough about how things work now and how we got to where we are. It's a lot harder to tell a convincing story about how things can become better or how to disrupt something. And, and, you know, and, and so if you consider fossil fuel, if we, if we made all fossil fuel disappear tomorrow, people will be dying by the billions. We would have mass starvation on this planet, right? We can't move goods or services. We can't transport people to where they work. Um, and for everyone who can't work remotely, <laughs> that is very bad news. Uh, now, it would be nice if we had, uh, this is something that's coming up in, a, in a, an event in June, I think it's June 29th in the post-industrial forum that we run uh, here in, the, that's going to be here in Silicon Valley, 
we're going to look at different aspects of, of decentralization, one of them, which is agriculture. So it'd be nice if we had you know, more decentralized agriculture, so we don't depend on agriculture, uh, agricultural products being carted in, you know, from a long ways away. But we're not there yet. And so instead of having, there, there's sort of this, um, there's sort of a, 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 a sort of a level of insanity here where people are also like, they're imagining a more decentralized world in energy, which I think is very compelling. But then they think about how to make that happen and immediately they go to, well, there's, we got to regulate, there ought to be a law. Well, so what, they want to create a decentralized world through central planning? And there's like a contradiction there. Uh, and, and of course, the way to make it happen is to, to make, is to increase freedom. That's when you're going to start uh, seeing solutions that, that create value locally faster. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know big uh, oil companies may surprise us. They may uh, may be able to innovate faster than we think, or we may get, you know, very disruptive, disruptive small companies that can grow very rapidly, um, and and they will you know make uh, make great changes. Um, and and there's you know there's another aspect to transporting you know uh, uh, extracting energy and transporting it from long long ways away, and that is uh, you know so there's there's kind of a national security issue here. So the Europeans have been learning that lesson with Russia. Do you really want to be depend on oil and gas from a country that has nuclear missiles aimed at you? And, and if you are a consumer and you know this, maybe you don't really want to support that. <laughs> it's 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 not a story. It's it's not a story that's too difficult to to tell. And so even even with parties that have the ability to buy Russian oil, there's been a lot of reluctance. To that and people do understand that they are they you know they live in the in the in the global world and that their local decisions can have global ramifications um and access to energy you know is is uh, is one of those things but in, in terms of of global warming and so on i think i think the answer is not to restrict technology it's the opposite it's we've we've always been able to adapt if you if you read about history going back to the bronze age and before We've had changes in sea levels. We've had changes in temperatures. Um, we've had um, economies come and go, uh, uh, go if they couldn't adapt, right? Um, and and um, uh, and the the more advanced we are technologically, the better we can um, we can adapt to an emerging um, emerging changes in the climate, which I think are inevitable. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think those are those are all good thoughts and and looking at the future of energy and how we how we get there, how we adapt, how we how we look at the future climate and the future layout of our world and instead of trying to put up walls and regulate and and stop it, trying to promote and incentivize innovation is definitely the the route to go with that i want to jump into my final questions these are the questions i ask everybody and some people think they're a little more fun some people get tripped up by them but i think you're going to handle them really well the first one being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend 
Um, well, I'll, I'll give you two. How's that? So there's, there's, uh, for everyone who's heard me defend, you know, uh, reason and freedom and human progress. Um, the fact that I'm a huge fan of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, who's my, by far my favorite philosopher, shouldn't come as a surprise, maybe. But um, there's a lot of cool content available if you go to AynRand.org, the Ayn Rand Institute's website. Um, people have been able to express some of these ideas uh, in terms of policy and philosophy and culture much more eloquently than I could. Um, and then I, I also want to mention a science fiction trilogy. Um, and science fiction is important, by the way. So, so we, we, um, we are often spending so much time reading management books. They're kind of, let's face it, kind of boring. I mean, I'm writing another one myself, but so maybe I shouldn't say that. But, but often they're kind of boring, and they all kind of say the same sensible things, right? Sometimes there's more detail, but it's often so it's a variation on my on the on the theme. And I like science fiction because it makes us think bigger about, you know, what our culture could become. And and I'm a big fan of of, of Star Trek um and star wars just kind of telling these big stories at scale and there's a sci-fi trilogy called the golden uh the golden acumen by john c wright um and that i read about a bit more than 15 years ago i think um it it describes a, a post-industrial culture so this is a decentralized economy with control over both organic and inorganic matter on a molecular level, uh, and it's set 10,000 years into the future. And what's really cool is that a lot of the technologies described in that trilogy are already in development, you know, by, by startups or by big companies or by, by funded startups. Um, and so I think we're in for a very, very exciting time over the next 20, 30 years um, in terms of both energy and in terms of decentralization of manufacturing and, and agriculture and and, uh, and and just nanotechnology uh, used for all kinds of things people can't even imagine now. So, so that that would be my uh, those those two books. I guess if you count, I guess it's four books, right? The trilogy has three <laughs> books, but that. but that's that's a that's a, a great place to start. All right. uh, and Ayn Rand is amazing as a as a defender of you know of of producers, of people who create, people who build, you know, to remind us that those are the people who actually, that we have to thank, that we should thank for all the wonderful innovations that we take, you know, mostly take for granted in our, our daily lives. Hmm. Yeah. The Atlas Shrugged book has been recommended multiple times. I think that is, it is one of those that, that has so much useful information in it so much useful so many useful ideas and there's a reason that that it has a scholarship and a foundation behind it the the sci-fi trilogy sounds very exciting and i am definitely going to add it to the list alice shrugged is already on the list so i'll just put a check mark next to it indicating yeah. that it's it's got a plus one yeah there you go so there's, the, a, there's a companion for anyone who is, you know, uh, uh, e interested in sort of more details of the ideas behind it. Uh, there is a book called uh, Objectivism, colon, The Philosophy of Ayn Rand hmm. um, by, by Leonard Peikoff, who was, uh, he's retired, 
now mostly he's in his 80s i think but he was kind of her top student uh back in the day and he's written a number of brilliant books but the objectivism the philosophy of Ayn Rand really is it's it's a book sort of an, an academic philosophy level but it's written to be readable by just you know like an average human being uh, and I think in the forward it says, and by academics for those who qualify. Uh, <laughs> as, as human beings. Uh, and, and, and he really goes into sort of her, her look at, um, you know, how, how to look at the world, you know, the nature of reality, metaphysics. How do we know what we know? So uncertainty, objectivity, so epistemology, uh, morality, so, you know, ethics, um, you know, and, and what should, how should people live together in, in a society? So the politics, and then also the, the philosophical role of art, you know, as Aristotle said, you know, art can play this amazing role to show us what could be and ought to be, to give us something to, to inspire us, to look up to. You know, that, that's the kind of art that I, that I like. And, and I feel like we should make work like that too. We should make companies like that. We should make people feel like, uh, we call it meaningful missions. Um, and we should give people meaningful missions, something that's not just grunt work to be done, but where they feel like they're part of transforming the company, of, of reshaping the world, uh, having an impact that's, you know, they can see that what they do matter. I think we all kind of need that. Uh, yeah. Things. Yeah. Well, the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? Um, maybe never. And, and I don't know that it's even a meaningful question just because I think it's, it's myopic, uh, because we have the way we look at energy is based on our current level of, of technology development. So we may be extracting energy from, you know, just plain matter very soon. And that may not even matter. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. Um, and and on the other hand, as long as fossil fuels exist, um, people will find some use for fossil fuels, which may not be what they are now. Yeah, that's yeah. a really, really interesting take on it. And I think that it almost is like that is coming, something that you don't think about unless you're reading sci-fi books and thinking right. about the future and not just not just the future that you're going to see, but what is society like in a thousand years? Because right. that is that is what the real forward thinkers are 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 thinking about and developing technologies to help us get there. But you know, EU regulators will require. You know, <laughs> if if it was up to EU regulators, the any new innovation would have you know a, a, a man walking in front with a red flag at maximum miles an hour right and, you know, <laughs> and so that's kind of the thinking we we can't imagine anything better we have to control you know we have to we we have to thwart restrain suffocate um and we want the opposite we want to think big and we want to give people the inspiration to and the freedom to think big that's how we're going to make real progress as individuals as organizations and as a civilization as we progress into this this post-industrial transition yeah, I think that's a really, really forward thought of the goal is to is to push us towards innovation and exciting us for innovation. And when you have 
somebody telling you, well, that's not safe. You can't try that. Or that's going to take too much money or that's going to do something that is irrelevant or that's not fair to other companies. Ultimately, that just that stifles us and makes us not want to try. Yeah. So the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. Yeah. You, well, you told me about this before we did this recording. You said at the end, I'd get to ask you a question. And, and I plan to make, I had planned to make my final question about fusion. Uh, it's always so discouraging. It always seems like it's, you know, 30 years away. <laughs> and you always get these like teaser, uh, uh, I think it's futurism.com, which was acquired by Singularity University. It's, I, I, I don't usually, I'm not usually like, critical, but it's kind of a joke. These articles, it's like, yeah, whatever gets clicks, right? And so there's this yep. headline that makes you think, oh, yeah, they figured it out now. Let's click to see what the latest news is. And at the end, it's like, oh, it's still 30 years away. So I'm gonna, I want to change my question to be, who is doing really cool work in micro reactors? Because on on our uh, in our post industrial forum, we've been looking for two or three people or startups to feature. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not energy experts. So we're we're mm -hmm. I was asking Mark Lacour, the 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 CEO of um, the oil and gas global network, uh, who's been a guest on on two a two hour events, actually most recently in, in April. Um, uh you know what's going on with micro reactors so if you have any exciting news and and people to connect with or, or startups you think we all should know about i would love to hear about that yeah so when it comes to nuclear i have not had anybody on the show yet about nuclear i am going to have somebody representing the nuclear energy institute i'll put you in contact with them but there is a lot of, I I was lucky enough to see this panel discussion on nuclear and the role of nuclear in the in the future, and my my big takeaway from all of that was that it it really is going small and going localized in order to make things, um, in order to make nuclear makes sense and also to make it more resilient because the the one thing that i think we've all learned is that nuclear seems to be a boogeyman that everybody is scared of even yeah. though it it really is not that bad and even when i think about it and something i'll i'll end up saying on a future podcast is that i grew up literally across the river from a nuclear power plant. I lived there almost 20 years of my life and I didn't even think about it or bat my eye or think twice until I moved away and started to understand energy. And that was even, I, I lived at that location during 9-11, during all of the, all of the, um, how to put it, just the change in the world with the idea of of worldwide terrorism and guerrilla warfare style attacks and it it was something that i didn't even think about because it was just it was so second nature that when i was driving to the local town down the road there's just this this thing over there and i never asked right. about it never thought about it my parents were never never scared or never 
clearly fearful that the nuclear plant across the river was going to get attacked. So it's one of those things that I feel like is a is a misunderstood energy source. And as we make them smaller, it I can see it going two ways. People will then say, oh, well, now there's grenades all across the U.S. as opposed to these big atomic bombs. And or it could go the route that it probably should is that we have these very, very clean, very uh, reliable energy supplies that we can now put anywhere. It would be easier too if we if we improved the level of uh, STEM education in in American schools and and, and worldwide. I mean, I, I was it last month I was in the local bar, just chatted with some random person here in California. And and he told me he confessed like he didn't know where Alaska was, and and, I, and I'm <laughs> I'm looking at this like I don't want to be impolite, but I'm just thinking just the, just the average level of just like general knowledge, just seems very low. I mean, maybe I'm just being a snooty European. I immigrated here like 30 years ago, and I, I I'm often shocked <laughs> at but but it's just you know if 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 we change it to you cannot get a high school diploma without knowing basic physics and calculus, we would have a very different society, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, so we should start, we should think about that as opposed to just lowering the bar and lowering the bar um, in, in, the, in, the, in the name of, of political correctness or equity or whatever. I think we should, we should consider that we're moving into a high-tech world and we should have higher expectations for kids and for young adults not lower expectations. Yep, absolutely. Instead of teaching cursive, we should be teaching coding. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 at least people should be able to sign their name. That's the only thing I use cursive <laughs> right now. That's, uh, my, my, I feel my handwriting is so bad. I, I, I could probably get away with, with uh, uh, posing as a doctor. <laughs> if, I, if I sign something, I'm pretty sure... You know, if you go to a pharmacy, a pharmacist, they'll look at that and say, oh, yeah, this person's probably highly qualified MD. <laughs> you know, here's your medication. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's not just coding to be serious here uh, as we wrap. So it's, it's really about taking knowledge seriously, right? And, and that's what we have to do as a culture. Um, that's what we have to do as individuals is, is take seriously the necessity to do real work, to really do deep work, to understand how did the world get to be the way it is? You know, what's happening where, how do things work? You know, what can I do to, to learn more, to develop myself, to, to not make the world a better place in some altruistic way, but just for my own happiness sake, you know, have some sort of positive impact on what's happening so that I can say, I did that. Um, and, and um, you know, that, and, and the extent to which those questions are taken seriously, I think a civilization will progress to the extent that they're not taken seriously. I think a civilization will deteriorate. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity to create a future that is un, unimaginable even by science fiction writers and, and i say that because i i used to 
talk about how it's really tough to be a sci-fi writer now because anything you think of, like three years later, there's a startup that's working on it. <laughs> like, like you, you're like you're you have to like make wilder and wilder uh, predictions in your sci-fi novel for people to be impressed because they'll be like, yeah, you know, my, you know, Uncle Bob is working on that. Like, <laughs> he's, they just gotta you know raise an A round, <laughs> and people are not impressed anymore. Uh, and so, so we we gotta really uh, we gotta really step it up. And if we do, we can create uh, a future where we really colonize the the solar system and and go beyond where we create uh, uh, you know artificial life, intelligent machines, where we get, we achieve indefinite human lifespan, uh, where we can use AI to make anyone a Michelangelo, right? By just augmenting what you don't have genetically, mm-hmm. you can get through you know through ai assistance so that you can design beautiful art or create beautiful art um where we can create buildings that would be unimaginable today that will reach into the you know to the to the stratosphere and beyond uh these are things that that we as a species have the 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 um uh the potential to achieve right we as individuals have the potential to achieve and and i think a lot of these discussions just get very myopic uh and again i keep coming out because i was involved in a social media rant earlier today uh, <laughs> i keep coming back to the usb <laughs> regulation by the, the the bureaucrats in brussels or the brains in brussels as i call them um and you know that's the opposite of what we need so so let's think big, big and let's let's unleash people to create uh, a fantastic future and it's going to happen yep Yep, absolutely. And with that, thank you, Froda, for joining me on the show today. I know that was a, a lot and a very good point to end on, but I want to give you the opportunity, if there's anything else that you haven't said, maybe you could plug the post-industrial forum and whatever else. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? Oh, sure. So so for information about the work that we are doing on creating um new management thinking strategy tools for uh, investors and large enterprises to navigate all of this. Um, the place to go is uh, uh, www.post-industrial.institute. So post-industrial.institute. And, um, and, uh, and then there is um, the post-industrial forum uh um, it's available from that website too there's a there's a link that just says forum on it and you can go to there you can read about our next event on on june 29th which is a live uh, or in-person event uh we have we launched uh, the forum in june of 2019 in uh in the city of london and we did a silicon valley launch in january 2020 so then the lockdowns came uh two months later and so we We've, we've done everything online up until April this year, and we started doing live events also uh, now. So you, I think we've had 64 speakers from you know, high-level executives, investors, former prime minister of Estonia, you know, a lot of interesting people talking about all the, uh, all, basically all the topics we discussed today, but going into various subtopics at, at great, uh, great depth. Um, so yeah, I think it's 60, 64 uh, speakers so far. And with more being added, and there's a membership offering. If you remember, you can access an exclusive online forum and and some exclusive events, uh, both for individuals and we also have enterprises that are members uh, as well. So, so uh, uh, and I don't you you put my contact information in the show notes or yep 
Yep. Yeah, Your so contact sorry. information will be in the show notes. I'll I'll yeah. put a link to the Post Industrial Institute in the show notes as well. Excellent. Yeah, happy to continue this this conversation with anyone who's interested. So, thanks very much for having me on the show. It was uh, it was a great pleasure. Yep, absolutely. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this episode with a friend. Doing these actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. If I'm in Houston, I'm working at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixtures. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.